This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church, and to be at peace with the mysteries we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Caleb J., Caleb F., Joanna, Levi, and Lydia. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Caleb J., who asks, Why did God wait three days to raise Jesus instead of just doing it right after he died? Now, before I answer this, I want you to listen to the next question because they kind of go together. The next question comes from Caleb F., who asks, Why didn't Jesus preach more than three years during his lifetime? You see what I mean? The questions go together, and not just because they were asked by a Caleb. Two different Calebs, of course. What they have in common is the number three. Jesus spent three days and three nights in the tomb, and his earthly ministry lasted for three years. Is that significant or not? There's another point implied in both questions. Why doesn't God do things immediately? Why does he work in time? Simply put, God works in and through time because he is the creator of time and history. Everything that's happened, that's happening now, and will happen in the future matters to God. He's not skipping to the end or fast-forwarding over anything. Gandalf says that wizards are never early or late, that they always arrive exactly when they intend to. And what's true of them is clearly true of God. Everything happens in his time, according to his plan. Now, what about the number three? The three days and nights in the tomb are specifically linked to Jonah's time in the belly of the whale by Jesus. So his time in the grave matters because it's another fulfillment of prophecy. I don't know whether there are any Old Testament prophecies about how many years of ministry the Messiah will have, but I think there's another possible significance to the number three that applies here. Three suggests completeness, a high degree, in fact, the highest degree of fullness. As I mentioned last time, the angels sing that God is holy, 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 because that three-time repetition elevates the idea of holiness to its ultimate. Just as the Godhead in its fullness consists of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, threeness is, in a funny way, a way of speaking of the ultimate oneness. So, Three days in the grave might be a way to symbolize complete death, taking away any hint that Jesus paid anything less than the complete price for sin. And a ministry of three years might be a way of symbolizing the completeness of the messianic mission. There may be other ways to interpret the significance of the numbers, but I find this pretty compelling when it comes to thinking about the intention behind God's work, right down to the smallest details. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Joanna. Let's give Joanna a round of applause. Here's Joanna's question. What is your favorite prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah? 
This is not going to be an easy question to answer because there are a lot of messianic prophecies in Isaiah and all of them are good. I think I might be able to name a favorite though, we'll see. First, let's remind everyone what we're talking about. In the Old Testament, the prophets did not know the name of Jesus, but they did know he was coming. They called him the Messiah, which means the Anointed One. Before a king takes his throne, he is anointed, and the anointing sets him apart to reign. Since the Savior God was going to send was coming as a king in the line of King David, it made sense to think of him as the Anointed One, the Messiah. God gave the prophets all kinds of words and visions and hints about what was coming. Some of these the prophets would have understood, and some were probably mysteries even to them. So, how can we look at any Old Testament prophecy and say for certain that it's talking about Jesus? Well, first and foremost, we can be certain because the New Testament tells us. The Gospels and Epistles are full of examples where a psalm or a prophecy is quoted and interpreted as pointing to Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew, for example, which we've been studying for more than a year now, is full of these. Once you're familiar with the way the New Testament reads the Old Testament, you'll find other examples too. In fact, the more you look, the more you'll see Jesus being hinted at and foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament. But in Isaiah, there are a lot of these passages, which is why he is the most quoted of the Old Testament prophets in the New Testament. One of the most important clusters of messianic prophecies in Isaiah comes towards the end of the book in a series of songs that are often called the servant songs. Here, through the prophet, God describes what his anointed one will be like and reveals that he will be a suffering servant. You'll find these songs in Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and in Isaiah 52 and 53, They predict that the servant that God sends to lead the people to their salvation will be rejected and will suffer for them, but will ultimately achieve glory. The reason these prophecies are so important is that they track so closely with the life, rejection, and suffering of Jesus. Anyone can come along and claim to be the king, but only the one who serves and suffers, as Isaiah prophesies, is the true Messiah, and Jesus fit this description perfectly. If I had to choose one prophecy in the servant songs as a favorite, I think it would be Isaiah 53 verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. This tracks so perfectly with the Christian gospel. Jesus reconciling us to God through his suffering on the cross because of our sin. That the Messiahship of Jesus comes through loud and clear. However, I'm going to throw you a curveball and say that if I have to choose an absolute favorite, I'm actually going to go to a different chapter entirely. If anything, this is a prophecy that's even more well known. It's found in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
The word Emmanuel means God with us. This is explained in Matthew chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel declares the birth of Jesus to Joseph, and then Matthew tells us that it took place to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. Now, why is this my favorite? Not just because it's the very first example of a fulfilled prophecy being cited in the New Testament, although that is a pretty big deal. It's because of that name, God with us, and how significant that is. When John describes the coming of Jesus in the prologue to his gospel, he writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus the Son is literally Emmanuel, God with us. At the end of the book of Ezekiel, after a long description of the temple that is to come in the new Jerusalem, the very last words of the prophet say this, And the name of the city from that time on shall be, The Lord is there. And when John in Revelation 22 describes what it will be like after Jesus' return, he says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. In other words, The end of the story foretold by Ezekiel and later by John is that God will dwell with his people and that this will be the end of sin and the curse. That entire incomprehensibly glorious blessing is summed up in the simple words, God with us. By naming the Messiah this way, Isaiah points to the same good news that Matthew does when he quotes Isaiah. Jesus will save his people from their sins. And now before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. Our first question comes from Levi, who asks, What would you do if there was a Goliath frog in your house? Well, when I was asked about an alligator, I said I would eat him, but a Goliath frog, that's a little different. If a Goliath frog were in my house, I would, of course, release a David frog to do battle with him. That's always assuming that my cats don't eat the Goliath frog first, which, of course, is very likely. And now Lydia wants to know, When the Holy Spirit sent Jesus to the desert after he got baptized, did he transport him there? Well, Lydia, by transport, I think you have in mind something like teleporting, right? In other words, disappearing from one place and then reappearing somewhere else? That would be really cool, but that's not how Matthew describes it. He says in Matthew 4, verse 1, that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. I don't think he means that the Spirit physically transported Jesus from the river to the wilderness, just that after his baptism, the Spirit guided him there in order to be tested. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking the big questions.